Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Unleash, the fastest hour on the internet. I'm your host, Jeff Tett, CEO of Results, where we believe all companies have untapped potential, that it shouldn't be so confusing knowing what to do about it, and disciplined execution is the answer. It's the best way to grow your business. And we have a, a very thought-provoking, I would say, uh, conversation on tap today. Leaders are wasting time and money on innovation without realizing. I know, shocking. And today we're discussing the consequences of focusing too much of our time on innovation and not enough of it on maintenance. Our guest Lee Vinsel will share his three steps for solving this problem and also how you might be able to apply them in your personal life as well. And I want to thank our generous partners who helped make Unleash possible, the hardworking team at Edmonton Community Foundation. I know there's people from that team that are on the, uh, on the session today. They do a great job at connecting donors and Edmonton area charities to help create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. And they make it like super simple to get your donation dollars into the hands of those who need them most. So please connect with them at the edfoundation.org to get started for as little as $50. And also our friends at Project Forest who are making it really simple for companies to make a difference in the environment. So if it's important for your company to help fill our country with lush forests and clean air, and who wouldn't that be important to? The team at Project Forest will make that happen on your behalf. So connect with their team for a conversation at projectforest.ca. And thank you to everybody again that's joining us. Uh, most of our audience is concentrated in Alberta and in Canada, and I know we do have people joining us from, uh, from around the world. And uh, if you're in Canada though, we are part of this polar vortex. So I hope that you're huddled by your computers, uh, socially distanced of course, from other people that are not maybe part of your cohort, but with your favorite beverage and ready for uh, a really insightful hour here. And also just thank you for everyone that helps this community grow. We hit a milestone yesterday, over 500 people have registered for an unleashed season pass. And uh, we're gonna continue to find ways to add value for pass holders. If you haven't signed up for a season pass yet, you can do it at the end of the episode and in doing so be entered into a draw for a chance to win a signed copy of the Culture Code by Dan Coyle. And if you like what you see today, please help us grow the community by sharing the episodes with your networks and some of the takeaways that you have from the episode on social media using the hashtag unleash results. So thank you for that. Now on with today's conversation, we're, uh, we're very excited and I'm delighted to be joined by Lee Vinsel, who is a professor of science, technology and society at Virginia Tech. He studies human life with technology with a particular focus on the relationship between government, business and technological change. So that's a, you know, that's a big, that's a big bucket. Uh, his first book, Moving Violations, Automobiles, Experts, and regulations in the United States was published by Johns Hopkins University Press in July of 2019. And then back, so six years ago in 2015, with his collaborator, Andy Russell, Vinsel has organized and led the Maintainers, which is a really interesting group, a global interdisciplinary research network that examines maintenance, repair, and mundane work with technology. Vinsel's work has been published in several major history journals and has appeared in or been covered by Aon, the New York Times, the Atlantic, Guardian, and other really popular outlets. And uh, he is lucky to be living in the beautiful Blacksburg, Virginia with his wife, daughter, son, dog, books, as you can see from his background and uh, surrounded by trees and mountains. Lee Vinsel, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Unleashed. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. 
So uh, your book, uh, your book was one of those uh, reads that I had a hard time putting down. And so I, I read it very quickly. And uh, on almost every page, there was something that sort of caused me to change the way that I look uh, at the world. And, and I think that uh, that we'll be able to accomplish some of that in the next 50 minutes or so. So you have a very provocative view of innovation and disruption. Uh, so I mean, in, in, in essence, I guess, why did this book have to be written, The Innovation Delusion? Like, what is The Innovation Delusion? And why did you think and feel compelled to have to write it? Yeah. So I mean, it really started off with um, kind of frustration over the way that play, uh, you know, innovation was being talked about in higher education and industry, especially Silicon Valley. And then um, it really, my whole life, you could say, started as a kind of joke. So um, the book, The Innovators, How Hacker, a Group of Hackers, Geniuses and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution came out. And my co-author um, suggested that we write a kind of counter volume, which would be called The Maintainers, How Bureaucrats, Standards Engineers, and Introverts Create Technologies That Kind of Work Most of the Time. And we started playing with that idea on Twitter and in blogs and stuff. And it just kind of took off and, and kind of took on a life of its own. And I think it was one of those cases where the joke has a real insight that we often focus on the new and shiny. And that leads us to neglect or ignore. Actually, most of our effort goes into using technologies or maintaining, repairing them, keeping our processes going rather than introducing the new. And it, you know, innovation, we'll talk about this, but innovation is really important and has been really important in history. But if we get too carried away with kind of fetishizing it, we, we start to neglect these other things. And so that's really what we started to explore six years yeah. ago. One of the problems that you reference is this, uh, uh, the term innovation speak. So yeah. innovation versus innovation speak. So why, why is that so dangerous? And what's the difference between actual innovation and what you would call innovation speak? Right. So actual innovation is the introduction of new things, new technologies, new business models into the world. And it's really important for how our society has changed over the last couple hundred years since the Industrial Revolution. Innovation speak is how we talk and think about these things. And if you're, you know, if the audience goes to Google Ngram, it's a freely available tool on the web and puts in innovation, it shows word use over the time, you'll see innovation start to come up after World War II, okay? And yep. it just starts going up, 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 up. It goes right up to 2019 where it cuts off, right? We're talking about innovation more and more, yet we're not necessarily getting more and more innovation. So one of the ironies is that, you know, say from 1850 to post-World War II, we have all this change. We have railroads, we have Henry Ford and the automobile, we have electricity, telephones, so many things. And yet we didn't need the word innovation to get that thing. So we're trying to like, we're trying to show that there's a difference between the introduction of new things and how we've come to talk about it. Because we think the way we talk and think about technological change and business model change is often not helpful for a variety of reasons. What's like, and what makes it dangerously? Why, why should we be doing everything we can to avoid falling into the innovation speak trap, if you want to call it that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, this is something that plays out in so many different areas of our culture, you kind of have to look at different places, right? And we're talking about like federal infrastructure in the States, at least we have a really great track record of building, building these beautiful things that get us a lot of benefit, but then not taking care of them. 
or we can think of, you know, in the context of business, which is really the center of, you know, this conversation, we see lots of examples where like innovation fads, like design thinking or whatever, kind of like comes into businesses, people get really excited about it, but then it kind of lead to business failure when people are just kind of like neglecting the, the bread and butter. Got it. What and what is, I guess most of the people that are on the call today are are leaders of organizations in some fashion. And <clears throat> what's the cost for a business if we get you know, let our own organizations get caught up uh, in it? And I was interested, like you talk about GE, this example yeah. of GE and what happened to them over the last 30 years in your book. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, uh, Jeff Amelt just just uh, released his book on sort of the failing of General Electric and what happened to their stock price. And he laments a whole bunch of things that he wish he had done differently. You have a very interesting perspective on actually what happened and what sort of caused the demise of, of GE. What is that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the failure of GE was set up by a lot of decisions that were made earlier. But I think that, you know, the the... General Electric stock really tanks in like 2018 is really when it really falls to pieces. And about two years earlier than that, the General Electric decided it was going to model itself on kind of like a Silicon Valley software startup. There was this New York Times article about how it was going to become like a Silicon Valley hot startup type firm, you know. Um, and, you know, they were going to do all kinds of things like create like kind of an internal venture capital firm that was going to, you know, have new ventures within this large bureaucracy. It was pretty wild, you know, but then like, you know, you see the, the it didn't, you know, I, would, I don't want to say it's the sole cause, but it didn't get them where they were trying to go. You know, two years later, they just like financial disaster as like things start falling apart. And I think that this is one space where uh, the kind of mental model of Silicon Valley, it just gets you in software startups get used in all these places where that's not necessarily an appropriate way to think about what you're doing, right? That's a really good model for, for some startups, especially software startups. But we, we've kind of kind of fetishized these ways of thinking and then we apply them where it's just not a productive way to, to think about our organizations. Got it. You also talk about this, the notion sort of that most of the time what we're talking about is actually progress, but we label it as innovation. So yeah. how, do, how do we know the difference between progress and innovation? Yeah, so, I mean, it's one of these interesting things. Again, if you go use Google Ngram and you put in progress, uh, our use of the word for progress in English starts to go down around 1968, right? Like right after the summer of love. So, you know, what's going on? Uh, well, you know, Vietnam, there's the environmental crisis and Earth Day. There's, you know, eventually there's Walt, uh, you know, like Nixon. There's all kinds of things going wrong in society. The economy hits the skids in the 70s. So people start, you know, really wondering if moral progress, I think progress used to have this moral connotation that it's not like technology is getting better, society is getting better, right? Are we becoming better people? And I think, you know, during that same time, the word innovation is going up. And that's really more focused initially on technological change, especially business model change too. But I think we just start using it as like a substitute word, right? And we get a little confused because it's not true that, you know, social benefits always come from, you know, innovation. Um, it, you know, we, we, in some of our talks, we talk about how, according to very strict economic definitions, you know, crack cocaine's an innovation, right? It's a business change that like, 
You know, it, it offends markets. It's very popular. Um, you can think about the opioid crisis as a, you know, a kind of innovation. Um, so I think we can become kind of confused about, you know, what technology and business model changes can get us. And, you know, we kind of assume it'll get us social benefit when it doesn't always. Right. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, you're making me wonder about uh, polling the audience a bit. I, and if the audience will, uh, will, uh, will sort of allow us here and indulge me, put your favorite business book. So the best business book that you've ever read, just put it in the chat. And I, and I want to see a few examples of what come up here. So looking for your favorite business book of all time. What's the first book that comes to mind? Just put it in the chat. I want to see what comes up here. So, okay, good to great, the advantage, uh, good to great, good to great, good to great, how the mighty fail, the big leap, <clears throat> seven habits, wooden leadership, influencers scaling up, tribal leadership, you know what, seven habits is interesting. Uh, and, and this is where I'm going with it, Lee, is most of the books that come up have yeah. been written for, they've been around for 20 years and not all of them, but some of them. Hmm. And if I ask the audience, so if you look at the, at the book that you put in the chat, what percentage of that book have you actually implemented into your business? So that's number one. And then the other part of it is, is how many other books have you read since then? And, and I think that this happens, is, happens with us all the time, that if you only read that one book that's your favorite, and you just focused on implementing that into your business, versus perhaps getting distracted by this new tool or this new idea or not even realizing that you've replaced um, uh, an old idea with a new one that's just got a different label, but it's the same thing. Uh, you know, what, where would our businesses be? So what would your commentary be? And like, how as leaders do we keep up? Because uh, we're afraid of falling behind, I think. Mm -hmm. But how do we keep up? How do we know when to change something and when to say, hey, you know, that's nice and shiny, but let's stick with what we've already got. How do we know the answer to that? Yeah, I mean, just philosophically, I think it's really hard to generalize about that. You know, I think it yeah. takes attention and wisdom to, to what's going on in the moment. But I think that there, you know, there's a couple things to say. I, I think that we need as leaders to be a, not let ourselves get it carried away with the new, just because it seems exciting and, you know, transformative potentially and lose sight of, of what the value is that we're getting out of our processes already. Um, and I think I just rolled two things into one there. So I'll leave it there. I mean, I think it's really about wisdom. Uh, this is what I'm going to say. It's also something we have to model, right? I really, and this is something we'll talk about a lot. I think that the, even, even kind of modeling the discernment of that decision, like what, what's going on here? What's the value we're already creating? What's this potential change? And talking through the, the kind of how we're, we're thinking about that to our teams Kind of allows us to to create a culture where we're not just getting carried away with the new you know i you know here's a funny example uh i have a friend here at virginia tech who works in the it department and he goes to conferences um you know kind of ed tech type conferences that are mostly focused on the back-end software that runs universities well we're still running some systems on COBOL here at virginia tech okay and there's like, you know, they have to like go to these couple of guys who can still do this stuff because, you know, my friend will change a couple of lines, but he's not going to get in there because he's very afraid of it. Well, you know, he, this is their running system on COBOL. They have these leaders who are, don't have any tech experience, haven't worked in the guts, but they're just like management folks, right? Kind of disconnected to day to day. They, they went to 
you know, a conference and came back and talked about how they were, they wanted to start using IBM's Watson AI machine here at Virginia Tech. And they're like, for what, you know, like for yeah. what are we going to use that thing? What's the advantage? And how does it have to do with these very old systems that we're holding together with duct tape, right? So, I mean, I think that's, you know, just a kind of funny example of like how we get disconnected from the day-to-day -day by the shiny. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you talk about North America being a little bit different than other parts of the world, which surprised me as well. And I, and I think it was the idea that in North America, we tend to focus a bit more on the short term mm. and as opposed to other parts of the world or a little bit more longer term thinking. What Can you talk about that a little bit, Lee, and, and perhaps what has led to that? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. So this, I looked into this because there's this idea um, around in psychology that maybe we're, we're kind of biologically wired to think about the short term. Um, because, you know, if you think about in Darwinian terms, there's benefit to thinking about the immediate payoff rather than thinking months down, down the road, right? So I was just interested in like whether there's cultural differences around this. And it turns out there are. Um, and so people in one study, people in South Korea are much better at kind of long-term thinking and putting off immediate rewards than, than Americans are. And I think, you know, I, I, I think it's a really deep question you're asking, right? Because it's about culture. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, there's, a, there's kind of, you know, in the US and Canada and other part, you know, other cultures, there's a real history of individualism because uh, we're settler communities, um, ultimately. Um, and, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I would say it, it's that. And also just kind of, a, you know, there's also been a lot of cultural changes in the last 30 years, whether it's kind of like shareholder value or things, there's incentives out there to deliver short term results, and not worry about what's going on down the road. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I was, as you and I were talking in the pre show, uh, Twitter came out uh, with their quarterly earnings and they beat uh, they beat the analyst expectations, uh, but users, uh, new users was flat. Right. And they also announced that they're going to invest. I think it was 20 or they're going to hire an additional 25 percent um, of labor. Uh, and I wondered yeah. what that's going to do to their stock price. And mm -hmm. I thought, you know, if, if most of those people that have been hired are on the main on the maintenance side to upkeep the platform as an example that'll be good long term but uh, but the short term stock stock price could be could be impacted and what's what is the impact of the way that we make business decisions uh, based on that kind of a thing there's so, a oh go ahead no go ahead leave you go ahead no i mean i there's a one of douglas rushkoff the kind of media critics one of his recent books is about our kind of obsession with growth and he actually uses twitter as a good example of like there's obviously true that there's gonna be a cap on the number of users, right? Um, and yet like they're offering real value to the people who use it. It's like, I wouldn't be there, you wouldn't be there if we weren't getting something out of it. You know, I do get things out of it. So it's like a really interesting example of like this trade-off between value and, and our kind of growth obsession that is currently true in our culture. Yeah, uh, going back to the costly, Again, trying to keep up and be innovative and adaptable, and you know, especially in the last year, we've we've had to be focused on that uh, a great deal as, as leaders. How how what's the cost? I guess so. If we're pursuing innovation and things that are new versus just maintaining what we've already built, like mm. how do you sort of assess and, and maybe talk about the cost, um, the opportunity cost of that for most of our companies? Yeah, I mean. 
it's really hard to talk about, especially in you know COVID times when they were working in such a different environment, and there has to be so yeah. much transition. Um, and I think that you know we'll see what sticks, right? We'll see what sticks out of this. But this is if you're going to have an innovation theory, I think you'd say like events like this are going to induce all kinds of changes, whether it's automation or whatever. Um, but you know, I think one thing that came out of the book is if we think about operations and maintenance in our organizations, it's amazing how bad we are or how much better we could do at those things. Like, you know, there's there's lots in lots of large firms, whether it's utilities or manufacturing groups, they're just not that good at maintenance. Like they could be much, much better. Um, and that would lead to more profitability. But I think it doesn't get the attention, right? Because it's like such a boring kind of thing that we just kind of set to the side. Um, I think that's the kind of cost is like, I think we actually leave value on the table when we're always kind of chasing the new thing. It makes me wonder, and, and you do talk about this in your book as well, that if we're neglecting maintenance in general, that would seem to imply that we're also neglecting the people that do the maintenance work. Mm. So maybe talk a bit about the impact on our culture and on our people, um, uh, short-term and long-term, if we're neglecting not just maintenance work, but the maintenance workers. Yeah. I mean, I think that we see this, this was probably the most fascinating part of the book for me to research was the long history of social science literature that really shows that there's like real status hierarchies in occupations, right? That if you give people like a list of occupations, they're going to put doctor, lawyer, manager, engineer at the top, right? And they're going to put, you know, a uh, bricklayer, custodian, uh, maintainer, all kinds of maintainer categories at the bottom. And this has been true for decades. Like it, there's studies of this going back to the 1920s. Um, and, you know, like, I think the status part is enough because that means those, those people aren't getting a lot of recognition. But then in other research we've done, it turns out that this, this kind of status hierarchies often, but not always, also align with kind of pay and compensation. So when we look at the working poor in the United States, where we have the best data on this, a lot of those people are the kind of maintainers types, you know. So we like to talk about two, the, those two things all the time, recognition, because you can actually be highly paid, but not recognized and valued if morally, and then the kind of compensation side of it. I think there's, there's costs on both sides. It seems that it would take a lot of courage, Lee, though. Like when I, when I look at, you know, like a financial structure of a typical business, if the people that are doing like the cutting edge, uh, innovative work they're paid the highest. If you were then going to tell a, you know, an average business that to make your salaries commensurate, you're going to have to increase the, the people that are maintaining what you've already built, mm. whether it's customer service or actual maintenance to, uh, and, and repair departments, you're going to have to, you're going to have to raise, you know, their, their pay by 20 or 25%. How many business owners are, are going to, are going to look at that and say, yeah, that looks like a viable decision. So how do we, how do we start to, I guess, balance this equation so that there's more equality in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's some level, it's got to be, a, it's about leadership and it's about like kind of moral leadership, like, right? It's about decision making. I think there's some industries where maintainers are so necessary and obviously of value that you actually see they're paid pretty well. They might not get attention, you know, but software maintainers are, you know, they're not doing so bad. Um, but I think there are lots of industries where, you know, there's a moral argument to be made about, um, 
you know, bringing people's pay and recognition up. Um, and, you know, I think that you're, there's always going to be trade-offs, you know, yeah. you're rightly pointing to like, you can't do everything. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, again, about modeling, I think it's also about uh, recognizing people for the work they're doing, right? And as a leader, like drawing attention to the important work these people are doing and the value it presents to everyone else, right? You know, to give an example, you know, on the recognition line, we sometimes see in libraries, I talk to a lot of librarians, where people will leave roles, like, like software maintenance roles, open source software maintenance roles, because they're not getting recognition, right? And go to another role where it gets more recognition, but the pay is not different. Because, so they're moving, they're moving, and you're losing that expertise in a very important thing, just because you're not paying, you know, you're not kind of recognizing it in the right way. So I think it's also about that, you know, it's about modeling, you know, how paying attention and recognizing people to teams. Yeah, that's profound. So the recognition seems to matter more than the pay. Uh, that's that's really interesting. Uh, well, we often use a, a stat that if uh, someone can make plus or minus 10% what they could make elsewhere, they will stay for the culture, they'll stay for the leadership, they'll stay for the cool, challenging work, right? You know, the recognition, the uh, the coaching and growth. Um, those, those kinds of things. So I think I know the message coming out of this is when it's safe to do so, uh, start hugging your maintenance workers. Right. Yeah, uh, anybody exactly. that might not be in the, uh, in, in, in the spotlight that way. So virtual, uh, virtual hugs for now, for sure. So what, Lee, what sorts of questions, like if you have some advice for us, what kinds of questions as leaders should we be asking ourselves before changing an existing process piece of equipment or technology? Yeah, so I mean, one thing I'd like to highlight here uh, is how bad we are at, at predicting downstream maintenance costs. I mean, I think that we can talk about like, you know, changes that kind of disrupt our existing practices and whether that's worth it. That's, a, that's something to consider as a team. So that's number one, probably. Yeah. But then I think we have to really think about what is a change if we want it to be successful, including adopting a technology. It's going to take resources. That's going to include maintenance and other kinds of operations costs, right? Um, and so I think we have to get way better at having that conversation as in all parts of our culture, especially in organizations. Like, what, where is this taking us in terms of downstream costs? I just don't see that being considered often yeah. enough. Yeah. Uh, and I want to remind people too, if you have some specific questions, try to uh, make it easy for me, the host, to navigate all these screens I've got going here. Put your questions in the Q&A box. I'll do my best to get to them. I see some commentary from, uh, from Robert and from Nick, uh, but please get those questions into the Q&A and I'll get, I'll get to as many of those questions for Lee uh, as I can. Uh, so Lee, another uh, sort of item that, that came up for me as I read your book was the common narrative is that automation and artificial intelligence, machine learning, are going to free people up to do more, I guess what you would call sort of meaningful work. Mm. And I have a, I have a problem with that because what, you know, you know, what, what is meaningful work? It's kind of in the eye of the beholder. And yeah, uh, yeah. does that further sort of cast a shadow and a bad narrative over not just people that are currently doing what you would sort of refer to as maintenance work, but, but what about the people that are trying to figure out what they do with their careers? Like someone that does not want to be in, in a spotlight role that wants to be an auto mechanic or something like that. Yeah. Maybe comment on, on society at large of that sort of narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think it really has to do with kind of devaluing other people's labor, 
um, and often kind of fantasizing that it's easy. I mostly see this, I, I, you know, I used to teach the ethics of computing as one of my classes, like politics of ethics and computers. I'd often see these young white guys, frankly, um, kind of talking about how they were going to automate secretaries' jobs away. They had no idea how varied secretarial work and administrative assistant work is like, it's very chaotic and complex, right? It's not something that you can automate away, but they, they fantasize about it as very easy. So I think that this often, you know, this idea that we're going to automate things away often has to do with our judgment of like how, you know, easy someone else's life is or something like that. And then I totally agree with your point about kind of like what work is valuable. Um, you know, a thought experiment I, would, I often use with students is like, you know, if you could, you know, we could probably build a robot that could fish for us off the back of a boat, right? We could like row, you know, go out on the lake and the robot could do the fishing and we just sit there and pop beers or whatever. But like, would you want to do that, right? Isn't part of the, the whole experience yeah. of fishing about, yeah. you know, the value of the, the work of it and the challenge of it. Um, obviously, you know, no one wants to do the robot except for like the robotic students who think it might be a fun challenge in itself, right? No. So I think that this is a helpful, you know, work is, I think, an essential part of human life. We get yeah. a lot of value from it. And, you know, uh, and so like we shouldn't degrade it um, and not treat it as a value. Yeah, yeah, no, for surely. Uh, we had a question from Robert come in and, and it's about innovating maintenance and operational mm -hmm. type activities. So, yeah, so he's thinking about automation, machine learning, cloud computing, producing cost savings on things like preventative maintenance whether that's on plant equipment or digital and organizational assets. So just, uh, you know, what would your comments be on kind of leveraging that to, to be better at the maintenance work? Totally. I mean, this is one of three points we talk about in the, the ch chapter, the maintenance mindset. So this is another reason why innovation speak versus innovation is really important because we think that innovation speak degrades our focus on maintenance and operations, but innovation and maintenance are not, necessarily opposed, right? And there's lots of innovation in maintenance that's happened over the last hundred years, from the idea of creating preventive maintenance, that's an idea from the 1920s, to computerized maintenance management systems, that's a product of the 1980s or so. And yeah. it, just as Robert says, it's, it has continued on. And now it's all about, you know, like uh, app-based, you know, phone systems that maintainers use, predictive analytics, sensors. I mean, there's a whole new world out there of digital systems. And, you know, I would say, you know, the message of the book, don't get carried away with the hype of those systems. You really need to check it out and think about what value you can get from it. But maintenance and operations are definitely an area we should think about how to improve, you know, as often as we can. Yeah. The blockbuster Netflix story is something I think that is now achieved like folklore status. I, I don't think that I've ever delivered a talk on innovation or been to one where that story is not somehow referenced. And yeah, yeah. this is what I've noticed for myself in the last five years, Lee. I don't think I've ever worried more about our business being like disrupted overnight and some kind of surprise comes into the marketplace of, of management consulting and all of a sudden we're, we're done. Yeah. We're finished. And I wonder if if other leaders can identify with that, that we've now got this unhealthy anxiety that we need to innovate more than ever just so that we don't get disrupted. 
And I don't think it's actually true. Like, do you have any commentary or even some research or yeah. some stats on how likely is it that the common business would even get disrupted? Yeah, no, it's, I would say, take a breath. Um, <laughs> what we know, <laughs> I think that, you know, what you're pointing to, we talk about this in the book too, is that innovation speak is really a kind of culture of fear and anxiety. There's all this worry soaked in it, even though we talk about it in terms of imagination and creativity, it's very much a, an anxiety discourse. And what we know is, I'm not saying like there aren't examples of disruption, but when social scientists re-examined Clayton Christensen's data, this is the, you know, the guy who put forward disruptive innovation, um, only about 9% of his cases actually held up to his own definitions of disruption. Disruption yeah. is far less common than we have could become uh, like attuned to believing. Um, it is an important phenomenon that has big potentials for the, the economy, but it just doesn't happen that often. You're much more likely to go out of business for totally ordinary reasons, um, like local competition from other businesses, right? Or, yeah. you know, people getting sick or God knows, right? You know, all those ordinary stuff than you are from disruption, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's good. Uh, and I and I think that the the pandemic has actually made me less concerned about our you know business going bankrupt because of disruption. And and I hope that that's it had a, it's had an I know this is going to sound strange, but for some companies, a, almost a calming effect on that uh, that unhealthy anxiety. Because if the pandemic won't won't disrupt your business and uh, what will uh, right? right? <laughs> Talk about disruption. Uh, yeah, that would sure take uh, that would sure take a clever uh, application uh, uh, to do it for sure. There's a, we're getting some questions and some commentary now on sort of society, more society at large. And you know, Eric has a question about uh, how has this improved life beyond work? And it, and it dovetails into something else that you talk about in your book, Lee. One of the research, was a research study not done, I think it's only a two-year-old research study where grade four kids were given, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that were given tablets actually perform worse on standardized testing than children that do not. Maybe mm -hmm. comment on sort of what we're seeing there, like at the downside, I guess, to thinking that technology is really going to save us. Yeah. Some people in my field call this solutionism. So we come to assume that technology is like the right solution to every single problem in our lives, right? Um, from the personal to education to, you know, to business. And, you know, we're seeing like a lot of areas where technology is not performing at the level we expect from it. And I think education technology is one clear example, right? Um, I sometimes end talks with um, about education technology with just a photo of a mountain of e-waste, which is really like what education is, technology has gotten us. We've, we've introduced all these systems into schools over the last couple of decades, but when it comes to learning outcomes, the payoff is just not that clear. Um, and I'm actually a defender of some uses of ed tech. I use it with my own children. I use uh, math program called Dreambox. We use Khan Academy. I think it has its place, but when we have too much faith in it, that it's going to kind of like do things for us instead of like hiring more teachers and paying them well and take care of them, we are, we are ending up in the innovation delusion, I think. Yeah. And I'm hearing a lot of talk about, we need to innovate the education system. And in, in a lot of ways that that's not the case. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the downside to it, you know, so that innovating the, uh, the educational system is actually not the end all be all? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the most disappointing version of this argument I get 
uh, I hear sometimes, which really bums me out, is this idea that like teachers are laggards and like they're like not innovating enough in the classroom. And that's kind of like holding us back, which I think is just terrible given like the value that teachers deliver to our culture and the sacrifices they make. But I think that, you know, I, I know I can't speak about the Canadian public school system, but in the US, it's just so horrifyingly unequal between the, the haves and the haves nots because of how we do schooling around tax, tax, you know, it's about based on home taxes. Um, and so like where you're at in, in a physically located in space has a huge, you know, impact on, on uh, what kind of school you're in. And it's like, that's the problem, right? It's so clear that that's the issue. Um, and yet we kind of, you know, in this solution as well, we fantasize that like introducing technologies or whatever um, uh, is going to kind of solve this problem. And I think it's just obvious, not really not clear. Mm -hmm. Most companies I think uh, are being exposed to this concept, like the Silicon Valley concept of fail fast. So yeah. you know, launch, you know, minimum viable product, viable product, just get it out to the market, see how the market interacts with that and then adjust and adapt from there. But that's dangerous, you're suggesting. Why is the, the Silicon Valley mantra ending up being dangerous for a lot of companies? Yeah, there's just so many areas of life where it doesn't apply. You know, we, we often talk about infrastructure and like lights and internet, all these things that we don't want disrupted on a day-to-day -day basis. Like if my internet goes out, that's a real problem for my work, right? Um, and I think that, this is the kind of silliness of disruptions idea is that there's a lot of part of life where we want it to be there and functioning uh, healthily, you know? And as we see this kind of fail fast mindset go into areas where it's not appropriate, we end up with problems. Um, we used to joke in talks that, you know, you don't want to apply fail fast to bridges, right? Because that will just kill people and it won't be like, you know, won't be a healthy way to, to go with civil engineering. Well, then like there was a real story in Miami where the local engineering school, um, you know, kind of had this new innovative bridge design, which was like all about fast, you know, fast building. And it is a tragedy. It collapsed and killed people, you know, and it was just like, you know, th this is a, a wonderful example where like you going slow and doing things right and, you know, using tried and true principles are, is a much better idea than trying to model yourself on a software startup. Yeah. You talk, uh, you talk at length in your book also about just available dollars for infrastructure for municipalities. And this is something, you know, if you've ever driven over a pothole in Edmonton, uh, you know, kind of know what I'm talking about. But there's even cases where a $50,000 um, know, grant, as an example, to fix a broken pipe is denied uh, in favor of, though, a proposal for something brand new for $150,000. Like, yeah. this mindset is infiltrating, you know, every part of every part of our lives, uh, whether it's whether it's our companies or, or, or it's government municipalities, like, what's it going to take, I guess, Lee, for us to sort of change that, like dollars are scarcer than ever, just to maintain the things that we've already built in our cities. How are we going to meaningfully, do you think, start to change that narrative and those conversations for different outcomes? It's really hard. You know, in the States, at least, we, um, I would point people to Chuck Marone of Strong Towns, who is the person who kind of unearthed that story you just told about the pipes. Um, Strong Towns is a group that kind of tries to create financially resilient uh, municipalities. 
And I think that the reality is that the way infrastructure policy works here, federal dollars will build roads for us and stuff. We can get those grants. But then as localities, we're signing on to the long-term costs of upkeep, but we don't have the tax bases for it, right? And partly it's a problem of accounting. So we have no incentive right now as municipalities to account for all the, well, let's call them infrastructural debts we have, right? Um, which are huge and have down, down road um, consequences for us financially. We have, no, we have no incentives. In fact, we have disincentives to be honest with ourselves about where we're at, you know? So it kind of like, we can kind of put on blinders and just ignore it's not there. And, uh, you know, kind of we use Marone in that, those stories of the debts we accrued to talk about as a metaphor for talking about all other things, including organizations, right? We can think of lots of examples where we're accruing problems as an organization, but for a variety of reasons, we're, we are kind of disincentivized to really kind of acknowledge the reality of, of what's hanging over us. I was, uh, I was having a conversation. We have a municipal election coming up in the fall. <clears throat> and so I was talking with a mayoral candidate a couple of days ago, and we were just talking about some ideas about the city and, and its future and you know making it more appealing for people to move here and job creation, those kinds of things. So we got into the discussion about incubators and startup communities. And it was, it was talking about the disproportionate amount of airtime that the startup community and the you know, tech community gets. And it only accounts for 3% of the jobs in our city, but the other 97%, you know, we're not, uh, we're not talking on Twitter about the Almeida pilings and the Titan logics of the other world. We're talking about these one person entities that might not ever become anything. How do we balance? Like what, what's, um, what's like, how are some examples, I suppose, of how you have seen cities do these startup and tech communities. So it actually does blossom. And because there are some examples like Jobber, we've had, we just had an amazing example of a startup, uh, uh, not a startup anymore, but a Jobber that's uh, just hit it big and doing some wonderful things here. So there are great examples of incubated companies that do great, but you know, the odds are low. How do we sort of do that from a, from a more holistic standpoint for real economic value and job creation? Yeah, I mean, I this is one place where I feel like it has to start with education and understanding the world around us. As a culture, and you know, I'm talking about Canada, the US, Europe, I'm all over the world at this point, we're way too obsessed with startups overall in terms of like their, what they get us economically. Yeah. Um, they're important in certain places and we can be reasonably, like we can have programs to foster them, that's fine. But in terms of uh, economic growth, actual innovation and all these other things, these large old businesses actually get us more. Medium to large size firms produce more innovation and economic growth than startups do by a long shot, right? And, and you wouldn't know that from the way we talk about these things. So I think we really have to have a better understanding of economics and technology and business and, and, and kind of just come sane about these things. Definitely entrepreneurship programs and incubators are fine. They have their place in the world, but we can't get carried away. And then, you know, it, it sounds crazy almost when I tell this, I start talking to my students about this at first, they don't believe me, but it's like, we should be doing as much for the municipalities as municipalities to work with those medium and large firms, right? to get them what they need so they continue to be like job magnets and, and innovators and all the things that they're doing. 
right? It's it's just especially in our I think our Western you know our North American culture we're so focused on the David and Goliath story that we miss that like Goliath is actually pretty important, right? Uh, for our economies. So I, this yeah. is just like. I think it has to start with education and and that understanding the world better. Yeah, and I, I I do sometimes wonder as well if our fascination with with startups is causing people in some cases at least to start businesses when they might be better off to join an existing one and add value and some horsepower to that one. I, yeah, it's there's not a right or wrong answer to that, but it's just uh, it's something that it makes me uh, uh, think about. Well, I, I especially think that's true with young people today. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we see it in universities around the country where they have these kind of like shark tank competitions and are ex encouraging young people to basically become entrepreneurs right out of college. And the reality is people, the most successful entrepreneurs are over 40 years old. And there's a reason that they're over 40 years old. It's because they've mastered social networks, markets, and have real topic area expertise where they know where they can make a contribution. So the way we, we we talk about these things, especially with young people, is just kind of upside down. Yeah, so uh, mama, don't let your kids grow up to be startups, I guess is the... Uh, is <laughs> or tell them to wait until they've like really learned a bureaucracy somewhere and then they can go out, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Lee, how do you uh, how do you think that we can do a better job, perhaps reconciling uh, the, the the notion that the world's filled with innovation speak, but what we really want for our lives is not to be disrupted. Yeah, man, it's I you know I've been on this trip for like six years now, and I think when I when I when I started it all, I was younger and more naive uh, to be real, and I thought we would end up you know with there was a chance that we could kind of like move away from the ways of talking about innovation that we have right that we would kind of mature into some like something 2.0 um i've kind of given up hope on that because i things just don't change you know like i see mit sloan schools offering yet another design thinking program and making all these promises or whatever um but i do think so with leadership i really think i've come to think it's about balance and that requires wisdom right it's it's important to think about the new initiatives and to focus on the value that new things can give us, but we have to also keep our eyes on the fundamentals. And so again, I don't think, you know, as kind of philosophically, I looked at people like Wittgenstein and Kierkegaard and a whole like a line of really deep thinkers who say that you can't get a generalization that's going to help you with that. There is nothing, there's no bullet list of bullet points that I get that can handle all your problems for you. It requires wisdom to be in the moment and try to cast the balance between the new and, and keep preserving the old. Yeah, and you live in this, uh, you live in this space every single daily. And I'm, you know, I'm curious that, that we're living increasingly in a sped up world. Like not only does everything sort of move faster, but we kind of expect it to be faster, right? Like I don't have to leave my house for a book to show up uh, anymore. Yeah. So how do you in your life navigate this sped up world that we're living in, knowing that the, the way to really have peace of mind and comfort and, and live a meaningful life is really about slowing down? Yeah, man, that's funny. This is like the self-help portion of the, the program or something. But I, you know, I think a lot about my relationship to digital media. Um, yeah. And I, I increasingly try to jack out of um, email and uh social media on on the weekends 
uh, we do like breakfast and board games at my household on Sunday mornings. So like we get out, you know, we're really into board games and the kids and my wife and I get it out and we just try to slow down. Um, but I also, you know, I also say that I also try to apply this maintenance mindset to my own home life. So I've gotten much more not, I'm not a DIY guy. I'm a markets guy. I like to hire people, right? But I've gotten much more kind of into thinking about the structure of the place I live in, the systems that are in it, and how we can do a better job like maintaining our property. So I really try to like bring home the message of, of these, um, you know, these ideas to kind of the home life. I think it's really important. And in the maintainers, we have a, I, I would love to send you these cards we made. Yeah. It says, make sure to maintain thyself. And it's actually like a coffee loyalty program. I don't, you know, like where you go to a coffee uh, shop, you know, and you get like, you per made 10 purchases, you get a free thing. Well, it's the reverse. It's like you, you punch it every time you say no to some request. And then when you get to 10 no's, you give yourself a little present. And that's like, you know, obviously leaders can't always say no, but it's just like an, a little incentive to like, you know, think about where you can say no, where you can slow down and then reward yourself for, for those slowdowns. That's you know? an awesome idea. I, I'm already, uh, I can already imagine the eyes lighting up with the people on this call. And I, and I think the difference between saying no and saying no well, like there's do it yeah. with, you know, be collaborative and helpful, but yeah, I think you're right. We tend to be probably a, a little bit more on the uh, committing, over committing ourselves totally. than, the, uh, than, than the under committing. So I'm getting, a, you know, again, a bit more societal with this, uh, you talk about like the Alice organization uh, does a lot of work in sort of measuring, measuring and monitoring poverty. Mm -hmm. And their research is suggesting that actual poverty rates are higher than the officially reported rates. And I wondered if you could comment on that. Yeah, so um, the way the, the poverty measure in the United States is famously bad. I mean, it's been bad since it was created and people know that it's not a good measure of financial hardship. So what the Alice program does um, at United Way is they, um, they go in and they have a standard basket of goods that they look at at the county level, how much it would cost to like pay rent and buy these things to live basically. Um, and then they, 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 they determine how much you would income you would have to make to, to uh, you know, pay for those things. Yeah. And what they find in the U.S. is about 40% of Americans are living closer to like, you know, financial insolvency uh, than, than you would think. So it's about the numbers about 40% of people are Alice families, which is just huge if you think about it, the amount of awesome. financial hardship. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think it's getting better? or worse? I don't know. I mean, this is one area where I hope to work more with the Alice group is I'd really, because I'm a historian, I'd really like to see how these numbers have changed over time. I don't know how much we can speak of that about that. But in COVID times, I think it's getting way worse. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I think the financial hardship right now on uh, the working poor is really, really hard. Um, because yeah. the places we've shut down, and we don't have people doing things for us. So a lot of it is hitting the working poor. So, yeah. yeah even in in some parts of Canada, uh, the indigenous communities are are the average death age from due to COVID is ten years, ten years yeah, younger yeah. than everybody else in the country. And and some of that, at least, is attributable to to poor infrastructure, bad maintenance, poor housing, yeah, yeah. low quality of uh, of, wa of of water. 
um, you know, th those kinds of things. So um, that's certainly a concern. And I, you know, my view on that is there's a couple of, I mean, we have to sort of meet, there has to be, you know, policy change. But the thing I love about leadership is we can build our businesses however we like. Yeah. We, we don't have to pay people the standard rate for that role historically. You can break those ceilings if you choose to do that. Yeah. And I, so I think you know, one of the challenges for us as, as, as um, in the business community is to look at the lowest paid people in your teams and see, are there ways that you can perhaps bring that up and be part of that change proactively instead of saying, well, I guess everybody else is doing it. So I might as well too. I think there's yeah. an opportunity for us to perhaps, you know, lead, lead some of that change. Amen. Lee, what are you, you're a curious gentleman. What are you working on right now? Like what's got you really curious about the world uh, right now? Yeah, so my new project, it actually builds off the, the innovation delusion is on, um, I'm looking at uh, why software fails so often. Um, that is like why software programs fail, but also how adoption efforts in organizations fail so often. So failure rates are supposedly between, you know, depending on who you ask, like 20 to 70%. Um, and that shows you we have bad information, I think, that it's such a huge range. But just, you know, even if it's 20%, if 20% of our adoption efforts of technology are failing, that's an enormous cost to the organization and to the economy overall. So I, this is my new thing. Um, and it became out because, you know, efforts to adopt software, maintenance software fail a lot. So I became interested, like, oh, wow, this is a whole world of like failure. Um, so I become interested in kind of human me mediocrity, I call it. And this like why stuff falls apart so often is my yeah. new topic. Look forward to seeing, seeing some of that. And in a minute, uh, I'm going to get Lee to share his three in 30. So the three things that we can do in the next 30 days as leaders to adopt some of this maintenance mindset and at least balance, uh, balance out this obsession with innovation. But uh, before we do that, what kind of change ultimately in the world are you hoping that your work makes, Lee? Yeah, well, I mean, really, we end the book by inviting people to a conversation um, because we don't think that we have the answers to all the problems around these issues. So we encourage people to go to the maintainers.org and, and join our email listserv for conversations about these things. But it's be, I feel like, you know, we brought up, we brought up culture a lot in our conversation. And I think that, you know, these are really deep things in our culture that we have to kind of pivot away from. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, this is a, this is something that's going to take a long time for us to work on. And so it's really about these kind of deep conversations to have as organizations and individuals about how we can do a better job uh, taking care of what we've already built in our lives. Oh, that's very admirable. And we're going to give away some copies of Lee's book as well. So if you stay till the end, fill out the bonus offers. We've got lots of content available for our audience when this is over, including a chance to win a copy of Lee's book, which again is a real page turner, very, very thought provoking, not just for business, but also for personal lives. So Lee, I, I want you to share now your three and 30. It's a new feature that we've added in season three of Unleashed. So what is your three and 30, the three things that leaders can do starting right now to adopt a maintenance mindset? And here it comes. All right, so this is a, a slightly different version of what we talk about in our maintenance mindset chapter. So check out that in the book. Okay, so I say start simple. Um, keep your eyes on the fundamentals and be human. So in terms of homes, 
Home inspectors tell us that people, the biggest problem in homes is people don't even change the filters on their HVAC systems. So this is like, I don't want you to be fancy. I want you to start with the simple stuff first and focus on that. Um, the second thing is this, is this um, cultural change about spotlighting your maintainers. So modeling that as a leader of thinking about the fundamentals and the people who are doing that work and doing a better job of focusing on, um, on, on them. And then finally, maintenance builds efficiency and profitability. This is about the arguments that we can maintain our success through these things and keeping, keeping our eyeballs on that. So really thinking about how maintenance and operations can contribute to our overall value. I like it. I like it. Those sounds like those sound like three things uh, that we can all start to do. And you reminded me. I think that uh, the notice for my filter change on my furnace is coming up next week. So thank <laughs> there you, you go. That, Lee. I want to really thank you so much for joining us today. And, and a thought occurred to me a couple of weeks ago as I traded in my perfectly good uh, iPhone for a new one, just because the operating system was obsolete. That what would the world be like if perhaps we deferred a little bit of gratification and, and allocated or reallocated some of that money to organizations that are really making uh, impactful changes uh, in the world for some of the social and systemic issues that we talked about today. So I'm not saying that you don't have to buy the latest and greatest, but uh, just give it a second thought next time. And perhaps there's a, there's a way that we can, uh, that we can do both. So stay connected with us and you can find Lee on his website at leevinsel.com. If you have questions or comments for us, uh, you can find us at info at unleashedresults.com. Send us all your questions and emails. And yeah, you can follow me if you're bored and you want to talk about football and business. You can find me on Twitter at, at Jeff Tetz and the episodes more importantly. So again, if you liked what you saw today, if you want to help us continue to grow this wonderful Unleashed community, you can do so by sharing the episodes online and with your social circles and your colleagues. And you can find the blog articles, which include the video link and links to the podcast on our website at unleashedresults.com. And you'll find it in the blog section. There's also a very special Unleashed section where you can find episodes as well. And in terms of uh, Lee's book, make sure you fill out the bonus offers forms when you log out of the meeting today, you'll be automatically entered into a draw for a copy of one of two of, uh, of Lee's books. Great book. Uh, and then if you're ready to sort of take a next step here, if you want to take your organization more into this maintenance mindset, if you want to have a conversation about how do you balance innovation with the core of the business that's really generating your revenue right now, you can check that box in the bonus offer section and Nicole will gladly reach out and have a virtual coffee with you and talk a little bit more specifically about what's going on in your business. And then be sure to join us in two weeks. So we're taking a couple of weeks off with it being a, a short week next week with family day across the country. Uh, so join us for a conversation with Mark Crowley about heart-based leadership. He's gonna talk to us about how most of the way that we approach leadership is often in our brains, but it should be in our hearts. And what are the absolute transformational impacts that it has on our people when we do lead a little bit more from the heart? It's great to see everybody today. And just a reminder, leadership's tough, I know, but it's worth it. Stay in the arena. Until next time, be well.